0: Scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 18. We'll begin there. And it reads, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler, and came... Oh, we're not low the right thing. Let's advance up here ahead. Let me pull it up. Having a technical glitch of some kind, but that's okay. I have another technology that'll get us there. All right. Here we go. Matthew chapter 9, 27, through the end of the chapter. It reads And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in all Israel." But the Pharisees said he casts out the demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Lord, there's much in this text for us that you have, much that we need to see and understand and be changed by. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that I would not speak any words that are not your own, that I would only speak truth, not my own thoughts, not my own opinions, Help us now as we try to understand our Savior more. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to imposters, history's full of them. For example, in 1918, after the Bolshevik Revolution murdered the Russian Prince Anastasia, spoiler alert for the kids who like the Disney stuff, rumors had it that she had actually survived for decades. And with these rumors came many imposters coming along claiming to be the survived Russian prince. And one of these imposters, her real name, was Anna Anderson, who claimed the throne. She claimed that she was actually the Grand Duchess Anastasia, the youngest daughter of the deceased Tsar Nicholas II. And though most of the surviving Romanovs dismissed her as a fraud, still, the girl actually did bear a striking resemblance to the princess. And she even knew many personal details about her life that got people scratching their heads. This led to her winning the support of many uh, wealthy Russian immigrants who genuinely believed that she was the legitimate heir to the Russian throne. Eventually, though, she did move to America in 1968, and well, her story inspired several books, they made a movie after her, she ultimately failed to win recognition in court due to a lack of evidence for her claim. And not only that, they finally took a DNA test of her, which showed that she was not related to the Romanov family whatsoever, and so she was nothing but an imposter. Another famous impostor in history was a man named Dmitry the first, who not only was successful at posing as an impostor of being a prince, but he managed to con his way onto the Russian throne. Oh, this must be a Russian thing. We got two Russians doing this thing. I don't know. But anyways, Dmitry first appeared in the early 1600s in Poland, where he claimed that he was Dmitry, the youngest son of the deceased Ivan, the terrible. However, as we know from history, the real Dmitry was assassinated as a, as a boy, and however, the poster claimed that he actually hadn't been assassinated. He had escaped his assassination attempt and fled the country. And so this man then went around as an adult, charming the Russian people, and Dmitry eventually raised enough support that led him all the way to Moscow, in which in July of 19 July of uh, let's see 1609, 1606, the fake Dmitry was crowned actually the Tsar of Russia. He pulled it off, but it was ultimately short-lived as he was murdered shortly thereafter, thus losing his throne after gaining it. You know, when it comes to imposters, there's no shortage of imposters out there. And while some imposters cause very little harm, other imposters cause great harm with their imposterizing. And the key to detecting an imposter from the real deal is knowing what to look for knowing the signs, knowing the information you need in order to detect the real from the fake. And if you don't know what to look for, you're going to likely be deceived by the imposter. You know, in Matthew chapter 9, we find the signs to look for that help us identify the Messiah, which is of critical importance since there have been a whole lot of Messiah claiming, people who claim to be a Messiah who were imposters over the years. And so when it comes to bad consequences of trusting an imposter, this one surely brings the worst consequences of them all. And so this morning, we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 9, which along with Matthew chapter 8, tells us about Jesus' miracles, which help us not fall for the fake messianic imposters out there and identify the actual real Messiah. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 where we're going to see four things the miracles reveal about the Messiah. And here they are. The miracles reveal the Messiah's identity, the Messiah's opposition, and his mission, and finally, his commission. Let's jump in and look at the first one. How do the miracles reveal the mission's identity? Okay. How do they tell us about who this Messiah is? How do they reveal his identity? If you've ever flown before, They don't just let you onto the plane if you say, hey, I got a ticket, right? I left it at home, just let me on. They won't do that, right? They absolutely won't. If you want to fly on a plane, what do you have to do? You have to have the right airline documents. You have to have the right photo ID that proves that you are the person who owns those airline tickets. And if you want to fly out of the country, you actually need even more than that. You need a passport. And sometimes you maybe even need a visa, you need a whole lot of things to prove that you are the actual person who is supposed to be on that flight, who's supposed to be going to that country, and sometimes they'll even ask for like hotel information because they really want to make sure that you're not up to no good and you are who you say you are. Now, who did Jesus claim to be? He claimed to be the Christ. And this isn't some fancy Russian last name, all right? Christ means something. It's a title. It means Messiah. What's a Messiah. Messiah means God's anointed or chosen one. Well, anointed or chosen for what? To be the one who would save God's people, the Israelite nation, from their enemies, which includes both spiritual and physical attacks. The Messiah was said that he would be from the line of David, which is why the blind men, when they come up to Jesus, what do they call out to him? Son of David. They are calling him the Messiah with that title. Now, in Matthew's day, there was a whole lot of people who claimed to be messiahs, we already said, like a whole lot. And here's the thing, all of them except one were fake messiahs. There was only one true messiah. And how were they to detect the imposter from the real? The answer is they had to know how to properly identify the messiah. They had to know what to look for. And how were they supposed to do that? Well, they needed to examine the claimed messiah's biblical passport. It's basically what it boils down to. Now, just a reminder here, the Old Testament was written before the New Testament. That's why we call it the Old, right? And in the Old Testament, we find over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. That's a lot, okay? And they tell us how to identify the true Messiah, which makes it a whole lot easier if you know those prophecies and a whole lot harder if you don't. So I want to look at one of these this morning. In Daniel chapter 9, we find a very specific prophecy that helps us identify the Messiah, And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we find the Messiah's mission. Here's what it is. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression and put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. That's the Messiah's mission, which is our third point. So we're not going to jump into that too fast here. We're going to slow down, but let's focus back on what we're talking about right now. Daniel goes on in this text to help us properly identify the Messiah. Here's what he says. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, so that's the starting point. When the decree goes out, rebuild Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem had been just destroyed. He says, from that time until the anointed one comes. What's the anointed one? Messiah. Okay. What's going to happen? There will be seven sevens, 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench and in a times of trouble, okay? And after sixty-two sevens, it says, the anointed one, what's going to happen? He will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's a pretty specific prophecy, is it not? That's precisely what happened. All right, now stick with me for a moment here. The context here is that in Daniel, Daniel and the Jewish people, they're in exile in Babylon, okay? They're not in Jerusalem. They're not the whole place was destroyed. And so Daniel is praying to God, asking for forgiveness for his sins and to restore the Israelite nation. And so during this prayer, the angel Gabriel shows up and he tells Daniel that God has heard his prayer and that God is going to restore the people, how? Through the Messiah. That's what's going on in Daniel chapter nine. And then that's when Gabriel tells Daniel when exactly this is going to happen. And it's very specific. And when did he say it's going to happen? Within the period of the 70 weeks. What on earth does that mean? What are these 70 weeks? Like literally 70 weeks from them. We know that's not true. Well, no. And we don't have time to like fully flesh this out and explain all this. But basically, the short version is that each week equals a week of years. So one week equals what? Seven years. Okay? Commentators agree on this. This is what it is. We find that in Daniel, I think it's chapter two. But Daniel says that once that decree is given out for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, there's going to be exactly 483 years, or, and I did the math on this, so you know how much I love you because I hate math. 173,880 days before Messiah arrives to do what? Put an end to sin and atone for their iniquity. That's what verse 24 says. And historically, we know... That the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, when did that happen? We know when it happened. It was 445 BC by the Persian king Artaxerxes. And so when, let me ask you, did Jesus arrive at Jerusalem to announce that he was the messianic king that they were waiting for? Most scholars believe it's about 31 AD. All right, you get where we're going with this? And would you look at that though? According to a 360, not 365, that messed me up for about an hour and a half yesterday trying to do the math on this, 360-day Jewish calendar, how many years are there between those two? 483 exactly. Which means Daniel's prophecy about the coming Messiah and his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, which is where he pronounced to that great city that he was the Messiah, right? It was prophesied nearly to the exact day. The Bible was not written by a bunch of fishermen and people who had no idea what was going on. This is written by, the, it was written by people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, about that triumphal entrance that we celebrate every year on Palm Sunday, which is a week before Easter, let me ask you another question. What does Hosanna mean? It means, Lord, save us. And if you look at Psalm 118, which is also a messianic prophecy, Here's what Psalm 118 says. Lord, save us. That's Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know, that sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? What did the people shout as Jesus entered Jerusalem? As he rode in on a donkey, which is another prophecy that we're not going to look at right now. But what did they shout? Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were recognizing their Messiah. They were calling him the Messiah. And now you know why the Jewish leaders, when they saw this happening, they went into like frenzy mode. Cause they're like, no, 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 That's not Messiah. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. They weren't happy about it. They saw the crowd chant, yelling that Jesus was Messiah and they were upset about it. And the crowd was chanting this. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. And everything about his life, everything about his ministry, and even as we're going to see this morning, his miracles show that he's the Messiah. How did they show that? Here's how. In the Old Testament, when someone with leprosy was healed, what were they supposed to do if they wanted to be allowed back into society, to rejoin the people? What did they have to do? Show themselves to who? The priest, right? And where does that come from? I'll tell you. It comes from Leviticus 14. All right, and in Leviticus 14, it tells the, the prescription of what they're supposed to go through, how they're supposed to go to the priest, how they're supposed to do the sacrifice, all that kind of stuff. And it's actually kind of weird because outside, I looked in the, in, I was studying this, and I, this is the only one I could come up with. Outside of Elijah's healing of Naaman, how many lepers do we find healed in the Old Testament? Zero. You don't. It's not a common thing. Lepers weren't weren't healed. All right. It wasn't It wasn't a normal part of Israel, you know, Israel's life. Okay, which means then that these purity laws in Leviticus 14, in regards to the healing of leopards, they just sat there collecting dust for a long time. It's like, well, that's, that's interesting. No, I don't, it's never happened before, but I guess we'll be ready for it. You know, if somebody gets healed from leprosy, but that leaves us with a really important question. Why would God give laws to his people that they didn't need? Like, I don't go to my kids and I'm like, Hey guys, by the way, if an alien abduction comes, here's what you're going to do. I don't do that. I'm preparing for things that I don't, that aren't happening. So, why would God do that? Did you know, that in the first century, that the rabbis taught something very important. They taught that when it came to healing lepers, nobody was able to do that. Even their greatest physicians weren't going to do that. And that was reserved solely for the Messiah. The Messiah would be the one who healed lepers. And that was a sign that they knew because they, I mean, there was major messianic expectation in Jesus's day. They're like, any minute he's going to be here. We know the prophecies of Daniel, which is also why if you think of way, way, way back to Matthew chapter two, when the Magi came, they knew that Jesus was coming. How? Where did the Magi study? Babylon, right? Under Daniel. Daniel was in Babylon and Daniel was chief of the what? Magi. See all this connection? Okay, let's keep going. So these first century rabbis taught that only the Messiah would be able to heal lepers and it would help the people identify Messiah. And so, why did the first century teachers think that this would be a messianic thing? Because they understood the prophecy in Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 35. It says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Similarly, in Isaiah twenty nine eighteen, it says in that day, the deaf shall hear. They shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. So with this in mind, in Matthew 11, which we're going to get there in about three years, when John sends a message to Jesus asking if he's the Messiah, what does Jesus say? Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Lepers are cleansed. See that? That's his answer. Which is basically way, Jesus' way of saying, you know all those prophecies, right? Why are you asking me this? You've seen the miracles. Why, why are you wondering if I'm Messiah? Like, you guys know this. Yes, I'm the Messiah. And so now you know why, you know, Matthew, Matthew 8 and 9, they're all about Jesus' miracles, right? Chap- chapters 5 through 7, it was the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at that. At the end of that, the people were like, wow, who is this guy? He teaches with authority, unlike all these other teachers we have. And then in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Matthew's like, okay, yeah, you know why he teaches with authority? Check out his authority here. He calms the storm. He raises the dead. He heals lepers. He touches lepers and can heal them. You don't touch lepers, but Jesus could because no leper could make him unclean. That's the point Matthew's making for us. Matthew's telling us all about Jesus's miracles because the healing of the leper, the healing of the paralyzed man, the casting out of demons, the restoring the eyes of the blind is all proof that Jesus is God's anointed one, that Jesus is the Messiah that they were longing and looking for. And so when the blind men in verse 27 realize this, they cry out to Jesus saying, son of David, which is a messianic title. All right? And they called him son of David, and that is a messianic title, because the Messiah would descend from King David. All right? He would be of the line of David, which meant he had rights to rule and reign as king. And so in, in verse 28, <clears throat> when Jesus says to them, do you believe that I am able to heal and restore your sight? He's not simply asking, like, hey, do you guys think I'm really like, I'm capable of doing this? Like, I know you see but I want to know, do you really think I'm strong enough to do this? He's not doing that. Not at all. No, he's simply saying to them, it's his way of saying, do you believe I'm the Messiah? That's the point of the question. And by faith, as we see in this text, they do believe that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus heals them, proving that their belief in his Messiahship is correct. However, not everyone did believe in Jesus as the Messiah. We know this. And of those who did not believe at the front of the pack stood the religious leaders. Which is pretty ironic because out of everyone who should have known that Jesus was Messiah, they absolutely should have known. They should have known it. Because after the leper was healed, what did they do? They went to the priest. Which is what Jesus told the leper to do. All right, And Levit- as Leviticus 14 says, they were go- supposed to go show themselves. And so when that leper showed up, cleansed by Jesus, that miracle, along with all the other miracles, along with what Jesus taught and how he lived, should have led the religious leaders, to recognize that their Messiah had finally come. It should have, but it didn't. And in fact, what did it do? Led to fierce opposition against him, which leads us to our second point. Why did the religious leaders reject Jesus? Why did they oppose him? There's a bunch of grumps. Like, what was was the deal here? They They didn't like miracles? No. They didn't oppose him because he just healed too many people. They opposed him because his mission didn't match their mission. He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. His mission was what then? To provide a healing that wasn't merely skin deep. That's why he came. See, as Jesus performed miracles, think about this. Why does he keep saying over and over to those he heals, by, in accordance with your faith, be healed? That's interesting, isn't it? Why does he keep saying that? He says to the to the centurion after he heals the centurion servant in chapter 8. He says it to the paralyzed man in chapter 9. And as we saw last week to the woman who had a bleeding disorder for 12 years. To all of them he says, "In accordance with your faith, be healed." What does that mean? <laughs> in accordance with your faith. Oh, I know. Maybe this means that if you just have strong enough faith, God's going to reward you with healing, all right? So if you want healing, you better start taking spiritual steroids, eating your spiritual Wheaties, doing the spiritual disciplines, pray, read your Bible, and fast. Is that the point of the miracles? Is that why he says, in accordance with your faith, be healed? Just believe harder. God will reward you. He'll give you good health, happiness, and riches. If you've been around this church for any amount of time whatsoever, you know the answer to that question is a capital No, Absolutely not the case. So what's the deal here with the faith and healing that Jesus is talking about? To answer that, we've got to answer another question, right? So we're just going to keep going with questions all the way down the rabbit hole. What is faith? This is another thing we recently talked about, but we, I think this was last week or the week before, but what do, we, what do we conclude? Faith is not a thing. You can't hold faith in your hand no more than you can hold trust in your hand, all right? Faith is not a noun, faith is a verb. You can only have faith in someone or in something. Just like you can't have trust, you have to put your trust in someone or in something. So if somebody comes up and they're like, hey, you know what, I'm I'm just a man of faith. I'm a woman of faith. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Faith in what? Magical, invisible bunnies? Like, what? What is your faith in? I don't know. You haven't told me anything. Because you can only have faith in someone or something. And Hebrews 11, 1 tells us more about this faith, and here's what it is. Now, the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Think with me about this for a moment. One, Jesus heals the blind man. Unlike the crowds and the religious leaders, these two men were completely blind, right? They couldn't see nothing. And however, ironically, as we see, the blind men weren't really the blind men at all, were they? Why not? Because even though they lacked physical sight, unlike the crowds and the religious leaders, these blind men had been given spiritual sight to see that Jesus was the Messiah. And if we aren't careful, church, we're going to miss what what's really going on with Jesus's miracles here. And here's the entire point. And the point is this, Jesus is granting physical healing to people as the outward sign of the inward spiritual healing that he can bring. That's the point. It's validating who he is, what he's there for. Remember what we looked at in Daniel, what the Messiah would come and do? Propitiation. Talked about the Lord's Supper. That's what he was here for. And see, Jesus's mission wasn't just to come heal boo-boos and ouchies. That's not why He came. And why not? Because that's putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. These blind guys, guess what? They still died. Their bodies still turned to dust. And so simply just healing people, that's arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not going to solve the greatest problem, the greatest need. And Jesus came to solve our greatest need, which is what? To heal our spiritual condition, which trickles down eventually to heal our physical condition. don't want to mix those up. A lot of people out there, a lot of teachers out there will tell you the opposite of that, or put those closely together. It's not true. Healing does come in the atonement, but it comes not today, one day in the resurrection. Jesus came to solve our real problem, and that's humanity's spiritual condition. And may I remind you that our spiritual condition started back in Genesis chapter 3, and that's the thing that caused all of this physical condition nonsense that we're all dealing with today. It's because Adam and Eve Thanks, right? It goes way back to them. And so the point of the physical healing miracles are to prove that Jesus has not only the authority, but the power to heal us at the absolute deepest level. Yes, Jesus can and will one day ultimately heal our back problems, heal us of all disease, but only in connection with the deeper healing of our spiritual condition. We can't get the cart before the horse there. The two go hand in hand. And so now think about this as well. Do you see why the Pharisees and the crowds rejected Jesus? They didn't think they needed the spiritual healing. Wait, 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 what? What? I'm, I'm a descendant of Abraham. What do you mean I'm not in the kingdom? What are you talking about? I, I got the blood right. I get in. Jesus is like, no. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's that they thought they were good already, but their goodness was not good enough not even close, not even a little bit. In fact, Jesus says, if you remember back in Matthew chapter five, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of even the greatest among you. And who did they consider the greatest among them? The scribes and the Pharisees. These guys were hardcore. They were the Navy seals of doing religious obedience. Okay. And Jesus is like, yeah, you want to get the kingdom of heaven? You got to do better than them. And everyone's just like like jaw drop. Like, what are you talking about? I can't do that. These guys deliver, these guys dedicate their whole life to this. Who can ever live up to that? Who can fully and perfectly obey God's law like Jesus is talking about? And of course, the answer to that is none but one, none but one. A moment ago, we looked at Psalm 118, which was fulfilled in Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And the verses right before the ones we looked at tell us that the Messiah would be the stone. He would be the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And that's precisely what happened with Jesus. Because the religious leaders and the crowd rejected him as their Messiah. And as that prophecy way back in the Old Testament shows, even their rejection of Jesus was a sign that he was their Messiah. Even the rejection of Messiah was a sign that he was Messiah because Christ was the cornerstone that was rejected. And so after Jesus's triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple there for a second time, which makes the religious leaders go full triggered mode to the point where they seek his death immediately, which actually took place a week later. And why? Because this was the Messiah's mission. It was to die for the sins of men which is the only thing that can actually lead to our spiritual healing, which leads us to our third point. The miracles reveal the Messiah's identity, his opposition, and third, his mission. In Daniel chapter 9, it reads, After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. And then in Isaiah 53, similarly, we read the prophet who writes there, And upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. As we think back on the miracles of Jesus throughout chapters 8 and 9, we find a hint at what these miracles are actually pointing us towards. We find a hint at the kind of healing that Jesus is really trying to offer. Remember, because heal- the healing he did there, that's just skin deep. So this points us to the deeper spiritual healing that Jesus is bringing. And so Christ healed the leper. And what does that show us? It shows us that only he can reach out and touch the spiritually unclean and make them clean. Christ healed the demoniac, which shows that only he can free us from Satan's tyranny, as we're about to sing soon with Advent season. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and free us from Satan's tyranny. Christ healed the paralyzed man, showing that only Christ can restore our spiritual brokenness. Christ healed the two blind men showing that only Christ can heal our spiritual blindness and Christ healed and raised the girl from the dead showing that Christ alone can raise our spiritual corpses which will one day gloriously lead to the resurrection of our physical bodies. And all this was made possible because as Matthew told us back in Matthew 8:17 he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. He took our illnesses. He bore our diseases is what Matthew's saying. And that's absolutely true because on the cross, Jesus gave up his robes of righteousness for yours and my spiritual leprous ones. He gave up his sight. How? As he was arrested, he was blinded, slapped, beaten, and spit upon. He gave up his freedom to walk about as he desired, as he was restrained, ultimately to the point where his legs were even nailed to a cross. And ultimately, as we know, he gave up his life so that you and I could have eternal life. It's the great exchange. Isaiah 53 ends saying, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. That's the Messiah's purpose. That's Jesus's mission to save And to justify sinful man before a holy God, which, make no mistake, that is our greatest need. And this healing is made available to us, just as it was made available to the woman with the bleeding disorder. By reaching out and just touching, even with an ounce of faith, it will save. Even the deepest problem, which is our spiritual one. The miracles of Jesus reveal the Messiah's identity, his opposition, his mission, and finally his co-mission. In verse 35, it tells us how Jesus then went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching and preaching and healing every disease and affliction. And then in verse 36, it tells us about Jesus' compassion for the people. He looked and he saw them and he felt sorrow for them and compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And why were they like sheep without a shepherd? Well, look at their shepherds. Look at their religious leaders. They were terrible shepherds. They weren't caring for them at all. In fact, they were leading them away from the great shepherd into spiritual peril. What kind of peril? Well, the peril of the harvest. Matthew nine thirty seven. Look with me here. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In the Bible, the harvest is spoken of in two ways. A harvest of grace and a harvest of judgment. And in chapter 3, Matthew already told us about how Messiah would one day bring a harvest of judgment. And, and he told us this. He said, well, I lost my spot. Here we go. Matthew three twelve. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. That's the harvest of judgment. And it is surely coming. And as we'll eventually see in Matthew 13, this harvest, which comes at the end of the age, sees the people of God brought into the kingdom, right? Because Jesus, the Messiah, he's all about the kingdom. I'm coming. My kingdom has come. It's all about bringing God's people into the kingdom while throwing those who are not in the kingdom out into the fiery furnace. That's the harvest of judgment and the harvest of grace. And when it comes to the harvest of judgment, that day is not yet today. And right now, our great healer has guaranteed our mission success, and he's commissioned us who have experienced the first fruit taste of that healing to come and partake in this harvest of grace. He's commissioned us to labor in it. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. In John 4, he says, lift up your eyes, see the fields, for they are white for harvest. And so right now, for this brief moment in life, this vapor, that's all it is, and it's gone. We have an opportunity to be commissioned with Christ, to serve and to labor, to share in Jesus's compassion as we bring the gospel of grace to those who are perishing. Church, we know the Savior's identity. And yes, we know there are those who oppose him, but we also know the success of our Messiah's mission upon the cross and his success upon the cross guarantees our success actually. And so why wouldn't we want to accept our commissioning and labor in the harvest of grace? Why wouldn't we want to, as he told us to do in Matthew six, lay up treasures in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how about you? Will you join the savior in the mission? To go into all the world, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to see those who are lost, headed towards the harvest of destruction, the harvest of wrath. Will you go and bring them the good saving news? Of Christ, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So, how about you? Will you labor with us as co laborers in this great harvest? Well, you know, I would, but I really don't know what to say to people. I just, I don't, I don't have the right words. I just, I get fumbled up, I get tongue-tied, blah, blah, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's okay, because that's actually something we'd like to help you with, which is why, shortly here in our adult fellowship and focus class, we're going to be talking about sharing the gospel. How to do that, what that means, what that looks like. And so if you struggle with that, join us for that. And secondly, we bought a whole bunch of excellent DVDs that are all about the gospel. So all you have to be able to do is just say, here, I can handle one word. Now, I hopefully you'll say more than that, but you get the idea. Another thing is tonight at six, as we said, we're meeting for an event contrasting one false gospel with a true gospel can come help with that. Now, as a church, we want to help you learn how to be effective labor in the harvest of grace. We absolutely do. And we want to co labor together, which is why we're putting on these kind of events. However, ultimately, the fruit of your labor is going to come down to the delight of your heart. You delight in Christ? Does the joy of your salvation affect the way you live? It should. Church, we have such a short moment here to labor in the harvest of grace and then the curtain's going to roll back. And that's it. And those who are apart from Christ will be damned by Christ. The harvest of judgment is certainly coming. Are you ready for it? Have you personally accepted the healing the Messiah brings which comes by grace through that much faith? That's it. And has that began to change you from the inside out where you care about all those who have not come to experience the Messiah's great deeper healing that he brings? Daniel 12.2 says about this harvest of grace and the harvest of judgment, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. By the grace of God, may we as a church labor in the harvest of grace in such a way that when we very, very soon from now stand before our risen Savior, we will look upon him with delight as he looks upon us with delight and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, I thank you for this text. And Father, I ask that you would convict us of where we have not been faithful co laborers in the gospel. Maybe we've become distracted, laboring for the things of this world, laboring for things that are so very soon about to burn up into ash and nothing. so, Lord, I pray for this church, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict our hearts, that you would give us a passion, the same compassion that Jesus had who looked upon those who were like sheep without a shepherd, and that we would go into the world and preach the gospel, sharing the good news, that the Messiah has come, the Messiah has died. And not only that, he resurrected from the dead gloriously on the third day, bringing atonement for our sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just Stand with us as we sing our closing song, Jesus Paid It All.